Hello everyone, I'm Trevor Cully, host of the History of Persia podcast. The ancient Persian Empire occupied many of the same lands that are discussed in the oldest stories. Mesopotamia, the Levantine coast, Anatolia, many of these places feature in some of the first written accounts in human history. The Persian Empire features heavily in some of history's first written histories, the actual researched books written by the Greeks. Persia straddles the line between the broken cuneiform tablets and legendary histories of Mesopotamia and the fully fleshed out narratives of later history that we're more familiar with today. In their own right, the story of the Persians is a fascinating one, stretching from India to Egypt. If the history of the places featured in the oldest stories continues to catch your interest after the writing style changes, come check out the History of Persia podcast. You can find it on whatever podcast service you prefer, like iTunes or Spotify, as well as on my website, historyofpersiapodcast.com. I hope you'll come check it out and see what comes after the oldest stories. These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Sargon of Akkad was the son of a gardener who overthrew the kings in his home city of Kish, then battled the united armies of Sumer and shattered them utterly, leading the kings and nobles of fifty cities bound and naked in a procession before the god of kings in the city of Nippur. He then proceeded to conquer the four corners of the world. We have a decent idea of what places he conquered, why he sent campaigns in the directions he sent them, and what sort of administrative reforms he undertook to secure and profit off these campaigns, as well as how this impacted the region as a whole. What we have basically zero direct evidence for is what order he did everything in. But last episode, I tried to remedy this by ignoring temporality altogether, and the lack of a story I think made it a bit less engaging, so I've gone through and done my best to order the various efforts of the Empire in a way that I think makes sense. Know that all the events which are about to be described are decently reliable accounts with a bit of secondary sources fleshing them out, but the order in which I put them is purely my own invention and should be considered even less reliable than most of this podcast. Additionally, there are going to be a lot of places thrown at you this episode, so consider going online to oldeststories.net to check out a few of the maps I have gently lifted from other parts of the internet to help clarify things. With that in mind, the first thing Sargon did following his grand triumph in Nippur, at least according to my made-up chronology, is to secure his grip on his newly acquired territory. The mechanisms for this were discussed last episode, but it is important to note how this differed from the previous Sumerian forms of conquest. Consider Uruk's classical conquest of the city of Arata all the way back in the first two episodes of the show. Arata was notable for being non-Sumerian and quite distant, but the general form of the conquest was a form that would be recognizable to Elamites, Sumerians, Akkadians, and any other civilized people of the region. The invading army of Uruk may or may not have faced a battle on open field. Then they would reach the city and attempt to lay siege, or storm the city if the opportunity presented itself. 
multiple calls for surrender would occur during the siege, and the longer resistance continued, the worse the eventual sacking would be for the losing city. Once the city fell, the soldiers would storm in and loot and rape and pillage and burn, the usual sort of thing. Then the victorious king, since an invading army in this time would always be led by the king, would either negotiate with the loser or appoint a new king for the city who he would then negotiate with. In the case of Arata, the old king was allowed to retain control of his city. This is fairly common, but was forced to make a statement or ritual indicating personal submission to the victorious king Enmerkar. He vowed to make certain payments to the city of Uruk, and in later periods the conquered city would also be required to provide annual tribute of labor and goods. Then the conquering army would pack up all their new stuff and march back home. Sargon's army followed many of these conventions, especially the ones that involved pillaging. But once the city was conquered, Sargon's army did not simply pack up and leave treaty in hand. A city once conquered by the Akkadians would have a permanent Akkadian presence. Noble estates would be broken up and handed over to Akkadians, though on what basis these new nobles were selected from the people of Akkad is obscure to me. The king would also be replaced, which was not unusual, but more unusually, he would be replaced by an Akkadian, not a native. Also, he would be lowered in rank, and every subsequent king would be appointed by the Akkadian throne for as long as the city remained loyal. To cement these new appointees, a garrison of Akkadian soldiers was left in at least all the major cities and possibly the minor ones as well, to make sure that no one forgot they were part of a new empire. And with the captured wealth of a new empire, Sargon likely spent the first few years of his reign stabilizing himself and establishing this new order. Not too long, since it would be a steady stream of victories that would ensure peace more than anything, but long enough to at least get all this off the ground and establish properly his new professional army, going so far as to create factories with hundreds of workers to supply his army with weapons and equipment. At the same time, Sargon continues his conquest of what would be his core territory. You see, for us, working mostly from a Sumerian perspective because that's whose history survives, we see his Sumerian blitz as a big campaign at which point he paused and consolidated for the next campaigns. But for Sargon himself, the defeat of the southern forces was only one part of a larger campaign. While he's consolidating the south, he's also conquering a band of territory in the north in a military action that, that is entirely unrecorded and known of only through context. You see, we don't even have a good name for this region, since the histories would come to call it the region of Akkad, basically Kish to modern Baghdad between the two rivers. Though, obviously, before the Akkadians, it would have had some other name. At the end of this early period, when Sargon declares himself king of Sumer and Akkad, these are two regions of about equal size geographically, both with cities and similar lifestyles, though the southern Sumerian region would always be the more wealthy and more populous during this time. 
At this point, Sargon gets the conquering itch. This first campaign of the United Akkadian Empire even has a fragmentary epic, though one from a much later period, so of dubious veracity, called Sargon the Conquering Hero. The tale begins with Sargon calling his troops together, addressing them as they are all about to set out. The sight of you encourages me, he calls out. Courage, discipline, aggression, and valor all combine within each soldier to produce a hero. Our military strength has produced the plenty we all enjoy, so lift yourselves up, proclaim your strength, and be proud. And his lead commander at the front rank picks up the speech, calling to the men to put on their equipment and prepare to face the enemy. It almost seems from the story like they're under attack. Perhaps this campaign only begins after an ill-advised raid from across the Tigris River. And so they take on the weapons and armor of the enemy, presumably defeating the directly opposing force with so little trouble that it did not need to be written down. Or the text is simply too ambiguous and there was no actual invading force. Either way, with the speeches over, Sargon performs a ritual to purify his 40,000 warriors. His core soldiers, the 5,400 who ate with him regularly, wore bronze breastplates, polished so well that they shone like gold. Around them were levies called from all corners of his empire. And here we already see two problems from using much later sources. Going from the omens and the year names, the campaign in Cimmerum looks to be the first major campaign he undertakes after conquering Sumer. But in this tale, about the same campaign, he already has indomitable levies from Hassam, a city to the north along the Euphrates, as well as swift auxiliaries wearing cloaks from the mountains. Now, Sargon himself claims to have been victorious in some 34 campaigns in his life, and we can't even account for half of those directly. So perhaps this is not, in fact, his first campaign, and while things were settling in Sumer, Sargon was off pacifying some borderlands. In any case, the point here is that typically hearing about 40,000 troops would strain credulity at this point in history, and indeed, it is the habit of classical historians to assume all troop numbers are exaggerated in whichever direction makes the writer look more impressive. However, while that's certainly true of Greek and Roman eras, I would argue that we can actually take this as a reasonable estimate as the size of at least some of his armies perhaps a bit inflated, even though it is an incredibly high number for this period. For comparison, city population estimates for this period run from 10,000 to maybe 50,000 for the very largest of cities. So this would be a full marching city, even if we cut the number in half. But despite how hard it is to take this number seriously, there are a few reasons we maybe should consider it as a fact. First is that Sumerian scribes have a habit of being accurate with numbers, since most scribal duties are various forms of accounting. Secondly, during the period just preceding the Akkadian period, the few times that we have gotten numbers in battles, 
that is during the wars between Umma and Lagash, they've presented fairly plausible casualty counts. Thirdly, this huge number confirms for us something we already know, that the unified Akkadian Empire has the strongest logistical system and largest food surplus of anywhere on the planet until this time. And finally, this last point is a bit shakier since Sargon had a vested interest in presenting himself as invincible, but there is the matter that all his campaigns except one appear to be almost easy, which would be explained by him showing up everywhere with an army four times the size of anything that anyone else can bring to the field in this age. Imagine a line of spearmen longer than your entire city, marching in solid formation, while a whole extra cadre of archers fires from behind them. How do you defeat that? Well, if you're the armies of Simmerum, the answer is you don't. Mustering his forces in the northern city of Eshnuna, where the Diala River meets the Tigris, he marched northeast along the Diala, likely moving overland but supplying by river. In this legend, he's journeying to conquer the mythic land of Utnapishtim from the Flood and Gilgamesh myths, and his only two obstacles are a forest so thick as to be pitch black and a darkening of the sun possibly an eclipse, though maybe just a poetic rendition of some other phenomenon like the darkness of the forest. Things that are not listed as obstacles include enemy forces, since they were simply scattered wherever they were encountered. And in short order, Sargon laid siege to nine enemy strongpoints, probably small walled cities, and made it all the way to the city of Hamzi at the base of the Lullaby Mountains, and burned it to the ground, then uprooted every tree in 50 leagues around the city. This last detail is more indication that it could have been a campaign of vengeance against a foe who had attacked previously. But just as with his campaigns to take Sumer and Akkad, Sargon didn't simply wreak vengeance and go home. He installed Akkadian governors, built Akkadian administrative buildings, and established the land around the Diala River as part of the empire. He still looted the region, though, sending boatloads of loot back home to Akkad. That's just what you do. Then Sargon and his army followed the treasure home and had a huge party. This was very typical and necessary not just for the soldiers' morale, but to demonstrate to the whole empire that Sargon was ever victorious and brought home the loot. But again, his big break with tradition, what made him an emperor and not merely hegemonic king, was that his troops were not disbanded with the end of this campaign. Some likely were cycled between new, fresh recruits and cycling out the old farmers, sending them home, but a large force promptly turned around and marched right back up the Tigris River, this time all the way up to the city of Assur, at the heart of the Assyrian region, nearly into modern-day Kurdistan. This campaign is another example of the Sumerian lens that we're looking through, since Assyria is at the time controlled by a people called the Amorites, a Semitic people whose way of life is not all that different from the Sumerians or Akkadians, except that their farms are a bit less fertile. 
Despite that, the Amorites are seen, for whatever reason, as barbarians, and so the Sumerians pretend that they are incapable of building cities, even while Sargon is out laying siege to those very non-existent cities. We assume, for lack of other evidence, that Sargon established control over the Assyrian cities in much the same way as he did elsewhere, and we also know that he was responsible for bringing the regime-friendly worship of the goddess Ishtar into the region. The destruction on this campaign was not vindictive, indicating that it was a simple conquest, and having installed his garrisons, Sargon returned home again to enjoy his new loot. A third early campaign was then launched, this time up the Euphrates River, with similar objectives and methods. This one stopped short of the city of Mari, near the modern Iraq-Syria border. You see, Mari and Ebla were two Semitic kingdoms of about equal size, each ruled by the titular city in a fashion similar to the city-state hegemony we were seeing in Sumer until so very recently. Together, they ruled a territory about the size of modern Syria, with Mari along the Euphrates and Ebla closer to the coast. They had been constant rivals for the last hundred or so years, and only a decade prior to Sargon's ascension, Mari had finally managed to sack the capital of Ebla for the first time in history, making it the region's ascendant power. Sargon's initial push up the Euphrates does not seem to have reached the city of Mari itself. This is a bit of a mystery here. This may have been because he simply wasn't ready to push into an established power's territory, but it may also be a sign that he was defeated here in battle. You see, Sargon, near the end of his life, erected a very famous monument, claiming to have been in 34 major pitched battles during his life, though I have seen it interpreted in other places as him having run 34 major military campaigns. In either case, nowhere does he claim to have been undefeated, but also nowhere does he ever acknowledge any defeats of his. And so, this first Euphrates push is a good candidate for one of his invisible defeats, or at least a stalemate that didn't manage to break either party. Part of the reason I think he may have suffered at least some amount of loss, though not one so humiliating that he would be embarrassed in court and forced to seek immediate revenge, is that after this, he shifts focus. Of course, there may not have been a defeat here at all, and he may have simply met his strategic goals and gone home. And if we look at one of the maps online at oldeststories.net and trace with our eyes the approximate region he might have controlled at this point, we see something interesting. Sargon is now king over a region so large and rules over such crucial junctions that it's basically impossible to get from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean Sea without first passing through the Akkadian Empire. This is important because the Bronze Age was absolutely dominated by the first ever great trading system in history, which connected lands as distant as Greece and Egypt with India, possibly even as far as modern Thailand. 
movement of goods and people were so substantial that the city of Tyre in modern Lebanon in fact claims to have been founded sometime around 25 to 2200 BCE as a trading colony for merchants from the island of Bahrain. Sargon may not have set out on his campaign of conquest with international trade conditions in mind, but he was certainly sharp enough to recognize and make use of them once he had them. He already controls the great river networks, the superhighways of the Bronze Age, but he starts building a network of proper roads to link his cities and the rivers more closely together. This makes him the first man of any stature to really think of Mesopotamia as a domain rather than just a collection of city-states that happen to share a language. To go along with these roads, he appears to invent whole cloth, the idea of a postal system, complete with envelopes made of clay with the recipient's address on them. Previously, it was possible to travel between cities, obviously, but with the roads, things became more regular, quicker, and safer. Of course, they hadn't yet realized that once these roads were built, they needed to be maintained, and by the end of the Akkadian period, they would be nearly useless. But for now, it's a contributing factor in the economic boom the Akkadian Empire is currently experiencing. Akkad now sits at the center of the world. With easy access to both major rivers and roads throughout his domain, Sargon can march or sail troops and messengers anywhere he wants. No one has ever had so much information about distant cities brought to their throne room, which allowed him to monitor and control situations to a degree unimaginable previously. And with the shift to a definitive center of power for all Mesopotamia, trade naturally diverts from the dozen major ports along the Tigris and Euphrates to being funneled through the city of Akkad, which pays for whatever it wants with the grain collected from the most fertile agricultural basin of the Bronze Age. And this is the most fascinating part of Sargon's empire. He creates a veritable industrial revolution, and in perhaps the least suited of ancient locations for industry. Seriously, the natural resources of Mesopotamia are grain, wool, reeds, clay, and mud. No metal, no stone, no wood. But the Sumerians in their city-states had exhaustively exploited the very few resources they had to make a flourishing civilization. So when a proper centralizer comes along, it's perhaps no wonder that they're really able to make stuff start happening. They had always exported grain to the Mediterranean and places along the Persian Gulf in exchange for copper, but now Sargon is receiving half-ton shipments of copper at a time, leading to a massive glut of copper that drives the price down region-wide, a phenomenon attested to archaeologically with an explosion of copper artifacts. Silver, too, becomes more common, increasing the level of monetization in the economy and reducing the number of people who live purely on the barter economy. The same thing was happening with stone, wood, and, to a much lesser extent, the very rare and desirable tin used in making bronze. This is, after all, the Bronze Age. 
And the Acadians weren't just passively receiving this new wealth, they were putting it into the most technologically advanced production system in the world at the time. By technology, I'm referring to the obvious things, like the fact that they seem to have invented the lost wax method of bronze casting and were capable of casting single pieces as large as 400 kilograms, as well as the fact that they may have invented the first primitive glassmaking. But technology also refers to the means of production, since Sargon was the first to adopt the idea of bringing hundreds of workers into a single factory to produce goods. In one city, he brought together 170 weavers who did nothing but weave cloth all day, while another 130 laborers were assigned to the nearby building to clean and full the cloth. Dozens of potters were employed to create pots on a standard template, churning out thousands of utilitarian containers produced at a consistent quality and size that were the ancient equivalent of the modern shipping container. Even with rare and expensive wood, Sargon created at least one military factory of carpenters to mass-produce not finished goods, but just parts for boats, wagons, and tool and weapon handles. And the best part of all of this is that the nobility seems to have, to a large extent, not participated in the consumption of these mass-produced goods. When archaeologists look at noble estates and burials, they find that their wealth is mostly in the form of goods looted from foreign cities, and that it's the rising middle class, as well as increased demand for exportable products in exchange, again, for even more interesting goods from Egypt and India, for, again, the middle classes, that are the main beneficiaries of this part of the empire. Even relatively poorer folks would benefit from this decrease in the price of manufactured goods, being able to afford perhaps two mass-produced standardized pots when before they could have only afforded a single handcrafted jar. It might not sound like much to our modern ears, but it's easy for us to forget that subsistence poverty is the natural state of humanity, and that Sargon's empire is the first institution in human history to start building the social and economic tools that form the foundation of our civilization today. And again, credit must go to the Sumerians upon whom he was building, but mass production mass trade and mass transport all have their origins here, in this big historical leap forward. Someone had to invent the idea of building a complex industry based completely on imported raw materials, and someone had to invent the logistical chain necessary for that to occur. And Sargon, or perhaps some unnamed person in his court, was the one to do it. And as Sargon looks out over his empire. He notices that there's one major trade hub that sits just out of his reach. In southern Iran, the Elamite city of Susa is a crucial trade hub connecting Central Asia, India, and the Persian Gulf, and it is entirely outside Sargon's control. And so he sends out what might be the first military expedition conceived of in purely economic terms. Now, Susa is an impressive and venerable city, even by Sumerian standards, and so the plunder would, of course, be rich. 
but it was the fact that Susa was the center of the Elamite trade network that seems to have enticed Sargon. And so he brought his massive army and launched a campaign that we know nothing about. Now, the Elamites at this point were organized into city-states, and so it seems likely that Sargon simply marched towards Susa with his massive, unstoppable army and pummeled their relatively smaller city defense force into the ground before engaging in light plunder and occupation. Like all cities he conquered, Sargon left some Akkadian administrators and soldiers, but because of Susa's importance for trade, he also left a large colony of Akkadian merchants and laborers, and appears to have somehow set it up to be profitable for them to link Susa into the greater Akkadian trading network. Sargon even brought his personal god Ilaba, a protector of warriors and specifically a god of the battle mace, into Susa, building a temple as a symbolic defense of the city against eastern threat. And that threat materialized soon enough, since the Elamites may have been disunited, but they were not stupid. With the wake-up call of Susa's occupation, the people of Iran came together to ward off Sargon's coming invasion. Now this, this was undoubtedly the toughest campaign of Sargon's career. Flush with the wealth of trade and war plunder, with all the resources of the unified and mobilized empire behind him. Tens of thousands of men marched eastward behind his banner, expecting to battle the last major civilization in the region. What they were not expecting, however, was to battle the land itself. 2,000 years from now, Alexander the Great would be marching through this same region and suffer the greatest death toll of his entire campaign without encountering a single hostile city. Sargon, with his incomparably massive force, struggled to keep them supplied even with his new logistical capacity. The mountainous desert of southern Iran was an order of magnitude less hospitable than even the hot plains of Mesopotamia, and this must surely have been compounded by some amount of attritional ambush warfare by the cities of Elam trying to level the playing field. But a guerrilla war only works when the defending force does not have strong points that must be defended, and eventually the Elamites were forced into a pitched battle to defend their cities. Still, they made a good show of themselves and were able to inflict enough damage on the invading Akkadians that Sargon was forced to admit that he lacked the ability to maintain a hold over this mountainous territory. And so, with the end of the campaign, he had reduced the Elamites to vassal status and secured his hold on the key trading city of Susa, as well as the frontier lands of Sabam and Awan, securing the eastern front of his empire for a time, but also cutting off any hope he may have had of conquering all the way to the mythical land of Utnapishtim. Still, his empire was now so flush with weapons, supplies, and manpower that he did not have to wait long before returning to his prior ambitions. His main focus had always been on the north, and with his back door secured, he rebuilt his army and set out up the Euphrates River. In later times, portions of this campaign would be mythologized, and this is where he would gain the title King of Battle, or Shar Tamhari, 
while he was certainly conquering mostly because he just could and no one could stop him, he may also have had a few other reasons for launching a northern campaign. If he had, in fact, suffered a defeat in his previous battle against the northern Mari, then this would have been stewing in his prideful mind for years now. It is also possible that he felt a religious calling to go north, since he claims both the favor of Ishtar on this battle, and eventually claims that the cloud god Dagan bestows the entire northern lands upon him. Finally, and most pragmatically, the legend of the King of Battle states that he received word that Akkadian merchants were being harassed in the crucial region around the Taurus Mountains, in the middle of modern Turkey. For any and all of these reasons, he marches up the Euphrates River to the gates of Mari, and following a lopsided battle, burns the city to the ground, foregoing occupation and even major plunder, it seems, in his fury. With this, he shatters basically the entire region of modern Syria. Sending detachments out to pacify the surrounding vassals of Mari, he led a detachment up the fork of the Euphrates known as the Kabur River to the town of Nagar, famous for breeding a particular sort of mule that was a crossbreed of an onager and donkey. Here, Sargon founded the northernmost administrative center known to modern archaeologists, suggesting that everything past this point was too far for even the mighty Sargon to project power reliably, and settled instead for vassalization. Still, while his soldiers were in Syria, he had every intention of making his mark on the region and enriching the empire. His most distant march, going from the river to the town of Purushanda in the middle of Anatolia, not too terribly far from modern Ankara by some estimates, was so harsh and logistically challenging that the defenders of the city expected the Akkadians to simply give up and turn back before reaching the city gates. Imagine the surprise of the Purushandans when Sargon does not simply arrive but arrives with an army larger than the entire city. The submission of the city is said in the tale to be sudden and complete, with Sargon being crowned king of the city in front of the main gate. And even the city god itself, the cloud god Dagon, is forced to give a humiliating submission to a mere mortal and impart upon him divine command over the whole of the Taurus Mountains. This is probably his most important territorial acquisition since the Taurus Mountains were known to the Akkadians as the Silver Mountain, named because the vast quantities of silver mined in this region, but more crucially, it may also have been home to a now exhausted source of tin, a crucial component to making bronze, and would have been the only source in the Old World between Thailand and France. But his colonial northern expedition doesn't stop there. He turns back south, but instead of returning to the Euphrates to sail back home, he travels south along the Mediterranean coastline, repeating the journey of Gilgamesh to secure the valuable cedars of Lebanon, traveling as far south as the Phoenician city of Byblos. With his large army, it would have been a small matter to simply chop large swaths of the forest and float the trees back down the Euphrates, 
but the real prize here was the nominal submission of Byblos with a minimum of fighting and very light terms, just a nominal submission to Sargon and an agreement to trade through Akkadian territory, something the Thalassocratic Byblosians likely desired anyway. There are even stories which claim Sargon paused at the shores of the Mediterranean coast and sent boats out to claim the resources of whatever might exist beyond the horizon. And the treasure fleet returned some time later, loaded with riches, claiming the people of Cyprus had submitted to Sargon. Whatever the veracity of this story, Cyprus was simply too far away to play any part in the Akkadian Empire, and won't show up in this story probably ever again. Still, Sargon's northern campaigns lasted three years before he returned in triumph. He was now the master of everywhere that mattered, and Mesopotamia had never been richer or more powerful than it was for the 50 years of his reign. Which is where we're going to leave things for this episode, as things are already running a bit long. So next week, we will pick up the story with the tail end of Sargon's life, and the rule of his twin sons, Rimush and Manish Tushu. So join me next time for Court Intrigue, Fantastic Opulence, and yet more military campaigning. Thank you for listening.